Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education at Monash University. And here we talk with researchers in and around the faculty about their current reading, writing and thinking. So welcome to a bonus recording in our fairly regular series of Meet the Education Researcher podcasts. My name is Neil Selwyn and I work in the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. And the aim of these recordings is really simple. We're going to spend 15 minutes or so getting to know what researchers in and around the faculty are currently up to. So today I'm joined by a guest from the UK, Ben Williamson, who's a lecturer at Stirling University in Scotland. Good afternoon, Ben. Hello, Neil. So lots to talk about. Firstly, the varied areas that you're researching. Safe to say that you're thinking about things in education that most other people are not. So I mean, how would you describe the areas that you're working in? I think at the moment what I'm trying to work on are new ways of imagining the future of education that are being kind of projected in relation to different forms of software um, and in particular different ways in which data can be collected, analysed and circulated and visualised and so on. So I'm interested in things like um, how is education being reimagined in relation to machine learning? What might the future of education look like if um, machine learning processes are being uh, enacted? Or even things like artificial intelligence which are currently being imagined by organisations like Pearson, for example, as a way of capturing a kind of real-time stream uh, about what's going on in classrooms uh, and through pedagogic processes. So, I mean, future studies and futurology kind of has a bit of a bad reputation for being all very pie in the sky, but the fact that you're linking this to things like Pearson and real kind of policy interventions means that it's a bit more kind of grounded in reality. So one of the concepts I make use of is socio-technical imaginaries from science and technology studies. And this is very much about identifying how particular kind of visions of the future are generated by powerful social actors, visions of the future in which technologies are seen to play a key part. And those futures are not just going to be sort of technically determined futures, but these are visions of kind of social progress uh, and so on. This concept of socio-technical imaginaries allows us to identify some of the key actors that projected a kind of vision of the future, how they've got other people to support that vision, and how they've then taken it forward through uh, concrete technical projects to realise that future. So, I mean, these are questions that I guess education policy researchers have long asked, but you seem to be using stuff from science and technology studies, or STS, I think it's called, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, how easy is it to transport um, theory and ideas from STS into the education arena? I mean, I think it's important in educational research, particularly when we're beginning to deal with these new technologies, to uh, understand some of the wider kind of conceptual and theoretical fields where some of these ideas uh, and some of these developments are already uh, being discussed. I think education research has a, a, a temptation to keep itself in a, in, in a kind of silo, only looking to its own theorists uh, mm. and so on. My interest is in trying to understand how some of the developments that are ongoing in education in relation to these kind of imaginaries are also related to ongoing developments in, in other spaces and, and other fields. Clearly, if we're talking about things like machine learning, data analytics and artificial intelligence, we need to understand and acknowledge that what's happening in education is happening in relation to a, a wider set of developments. In fact, what's happening in education may well be part of a, a much broader kind of discourse about the power of data analytics, one that is uh, working in similar ways uh, in the fields of sort of media and consumption as it is uh, in public services uh, and particularly in our field in education. 
But at the same time, I'm not just trying to employ concepts from fields like STS. I think as education researchers in this space, we need to be a bit more bold about trying to talk back to these spaces mm. as well and say, you know, hang on, there are developments that are ongoing in education here around machine learning, around artificial intelligence, which are importantly sort of shaping our social institution, but which might have implications for a broader understanding of the kind of social power um, of uh, software and data analytics uh, more widely. Yeah, so it's kind of joining the dots up, but as you say, not coming at it from a deficit perspective and saying that education's got a kind of a, a strong role to play in actually building theory as well as using theory. Yeah, absolutely. I think in terms of the development of big data and the uh, use of big data for sort of capturing in near to real time a sense of what's going on in certain spaces, I think we're perhaps seeing this developing uh, within education more forcefully um, than in a, a number of other yeah, yeah. spaces. Uh, um, so I think we need to talk back to the wider fields of sociology, uh, media, uh, and particularly sort of STS, about what we can learn from this particular space. Yeah, it's really interesting how education and health are being kind of held up as two real spaces mm-hmm. where these issues are actually being brought to bear. Yeah, so I mean, these are all really kind of interesting, but slightly kind of niche interests. I'm wondering, how do you actually kind of get this work across to the general education research community? I mean, what sort of journals or area of the field do you get interest from in this? I think there is fast growing interest in this area. So I'm part of a couple of special issues that that other people are are running at the moment, um, which are in non-education technology uh, education journals. Mm. Um, Some of the early stuff that I was working on in this space, I actually found um, was of interest in policy journals. Um, So some of the original work um, that I did around data analytics was actually uh, published in Journal of Education Policy, um, because I could see how organisations like Pearson were not just trying to develop new kind of big data machine learning techniques for the classroom, but are actually saying, hang on, we can employ these kinds of technologies and processes as a way of conducting a kind of real-time policy analytics um, in ways which might, you know, inform policymakers in a much more accelerated way about what's going on in the the wider landscape of education. So the policy uh, journals have have seemed to take an interest in, in some of this. Um, But, you know, I I said a moment ago about trying to avoid keeping some of this stuff sort of in the education or education technology silo. And I'm actually finding that journals like Big Data and Society, Information Communication and Society are increasingly open uh, to um, articles that are reporting on what's happening in education as part of this much wider shift um, and, and a kind of an, an acknowledgement amongst social scientists that forms of big data, data analytics and so on represent really quite a challenge in terms of our um, understanding. And that's one of the things I find that people in education faculties often find it difficult to do is make connections with the outside world. I mean, education is such an interesting case study in many different ways that that's something that a lot of people kind of need to think more carefully about in some ways. I also wanted to talk to you about methods. I mean, everything you've said it sounds very interesting. I'm really interested in terms of how you empirically explore these issues. I mean, what sort of methodological traditions are you working in? I was originally a student of literature, studied American literature as a postgraduate student so I've always tended towards forms of sort of textual and documentary analysis sort of close reading of uh, texts uh, the sort of work that's uh, often done in the policy domain um, but also 
the study of literature many years ago began to morph into a form of cultural studies which took all sorts of different artefacts and objects and different texts as the object of study and tried to work out how can we kind of read these texts, you know, um, how can we read magazines, how can we read cereal boxes. And of course what we, we now have are emerging forms of kind of um, software studies and critical data studies which are also trying to read different sorts of um, technical artifacts and, and their processes. So you can do that through the kind of documentary analysis of some of the texts that surround these kinds of processes. Mm. But also increasingly, I'm trying to work out ways in which you can get to grips with the artifacts themselves. What, what, what kind of work are they doing? So or some of the sort of methodological uh, approaches uh, that I take from areas like software studies and data studies are to acknowledge firstly that um, all of these objects, these artefacts, these devices are produced. Um, they are produced by organisations with business plans, uh, with supporters, with backers to achieve certain kinds of socio-technical imaginaries. So therefore we can study the organisations that actually produce these things. Um, it's often difficult to get access to some of these organisations, particularly the, the larger commercial ones. But if we can't do that kind of um, embedded ethnographic work, then an awful lot of these organisations now produce quite a, a strong kind of social media blueprint in terms of reporting on ongoing development. Um, so just beginning to think about how we might engage with some of the engineering blogs, for example, that are produced by a number of organisations. So one of the companies I look at um, in some of my research is Class Dojo. And Class Dojo presents an extraordinary amount of its uh, development process on some of its own blogs um, and through its own kind of projection of its uh, business through social media uh, and through its interaction with other media platforms. So it's kind of self-documenting itself. Yeah, absolutely. And these are these processes of these organisations documenting themselves provide us with, I think, really rich data sets which we can explore. So we can do that through the kind of, um, sort of traditional approaches of textual analysis. But I think we can then synthesize that with looking at the particular products that are produced. Um, yes, these products are produced by certain social actors, but once they are uh, in the world, they also have their own kind of productive power. Uh, these products then have productive effects. Um, so in the case of Class Dojo, I mentioned a moment ago. Uh, it's a very small uh, classroom app, really, uh, developed for teachers to monitor classroom behaviour. But as that has moved from its site of production in a studio in Silicon Valley into literally tens of thousands of classrooms worldwide, it is clearly having some kind of productive effect on what happens inside of classrooms. The language of the Class Dojo company is shaping classroom discourse. The app itself is shaping what teachers do in the classroom. Teachers are required by Class Dojo to undertake a kind of frequent updating of the um, behavioural points they reward in the classroom. So I think we can try and get as close to the processes that lead to the production of these particular software uh, products 
but then I think we need to get close to the actual products themselves and, and what they do and what they accomplish. So it's this kind of STS tradition of following the traces of things from production through to kind of use. And yeah, no, that's a really interesting approach. But just slowing down for a second, I kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit about ideas and where you're kind of coming from. So you've mentioned the kind of American literature and the cultural studies tradition. But I mean, where's your head at at the moment? What ideas and concepts are shaping your thoughts? I mean, I'm interested in kind of who you're reading and what are you thinking about? I'm starting to engage quite seriously at the moment with um, critical social scientific studies of neuroscience. Okay. Um, so a, a kind of knowledge of the brain um, generated by neuroscience is increasingly being used by government departments and policymakers who want to design new kinds of interventions based on a knowledge of, uh, of, the, of how the brain responds to certain kind of uh, interventions and so on. But in particular, my interest is in um, how a knowledge of the brain is being used as the inspiration for the development of particular kinds of technologies. Mm. So we're seeing, for example, organisations like IBM, which has its own in-house neuroscientists, developing its own brain-based technologies, uh, things like its Watson supercomputer, uh, what it calls neurosynaptic chips uh, and neuromorphic um, computing um, systems and so on. And it is then taking those technologies uh, and beginning to apply them in education. So IBM has its own IBM Watson uh, for education program. IBM has partnered with Pearson um, to try and bring some of these brain-inspired technologies into uh, the kind of pedagogic encounter uh, with, with the student. So we're basically at a position now where we have brain-inspired technologies being inserted into educational environments and contexts where those technologies might then interact with human beings with uh, with human brains in classrooms, and there's within some of the, the sort of more critical sociological uh, work on neuroscience at the moment. There's talk of what they describe as biosocial processes. So this is an acknowledgement that the brain is itself shaped um, as a biological organ by its interaction with uh, social contexts. And there's a social scientific attempt to make sense of this. How, how is the biological shaped by the social, but how does the social also uh, shape the biological and so on? And my interest in particular is, what is the role of the, the technical within this kind of biosocial relationship? So I suppose what I'm trying to do over the, the next stages of my research is really tease open this kind of bio socio-technical nexus of things that seem to be developing, particularly around organisations like IBM. Mm. So, I mean, are you engaging with any of the kind of the, the neuro literature as well as the social scientific literature? Yeah, uh, well, so I think it's really important that we engage with some of the actually produced neuroscientific literature mm. around this. Uh, we need to understand what it is the, the neuroscientists are saying. Again, IBM has produced quite an extensive literature of its own with, from its own in-house neuroscience uh, teams. So that, will, that acts as a source of uh, data itself, something uh, to study, but it also helps us to understand what particular kind of neuro-knowledges are, be, are being produced here. And you've talked about IBM Pearson, Class Dojo, you've not mentioned governments or departments. I'm mean, really interested that your research is very much focused on this kind of public-private, private sector for profit involvement in education. I think something that's really interesting happening just at the moment is that technologies are being used as a way of potentially 
leapfrogging or perhaps short-circuiting some of the existing policy processes that are associated with the way in which government departments work. So of course organisations like Pearson are working hard to try and influence government departments. But at the same time we see these smaller start-up organisations like Class Dojo for example actively trying to work around the normal kind of policy making processes. So Class Dojo has uh, gone straight to the classroom um, by marketing its product via Twitter and Facebook directly to teachers. Not to head teachers, not to local authorities, not to national policymakers or anything like that. It's going straight to the classroom and reshaping what happens in quite a a direct way through that kind of appeal to the to the classroom teacher. So I think there's something there for me about the way in which social media itself is being used as a way of um, speeding up the processes of educational change, mm. um, which is incredibly attractive in that kind of Californian, Silicon Valley, kind of accelerated and disruptive culture of wanting to you know, challenge the existing and traditional and bureaucratic way in which things are done. But that does mean, of course, that what we're ending up with are particularly some of these more small startup organisations, organisations, you know, that have a strong social commitment to education and so on, but they're able to exert uh, a huge amount of influence on education at a huge scale, um, which I don't think is achievable by working through uh, government departments. Well, certainly that would be their view, and they're therefore trying to find um, handy workarounds to achieve their goals. So you're tackling some huge issues. You're not making life easy for yourself in terms of doing research. You could just go into a classroom and see it. But I mean, you're tackling some really interesting stuff here. But clearly, it's, I mean, there's a lot of work involved in this, a lot of thinking involved in this. So I guess my final question is, why are you doing this? You're a, you're a clever guy. You could be working for a startup. You could be kind of reimagining the brain. You could be doing a hundred other things. Why education research? What do you get out of doing education research? As an academic, I feel it's important to try to make sense of what's going on. So, yes, I think I'm dealing with some fairly uh, big developments at the moment. The thing is, a lot of this is happening at high speed. Mm. Um, it's happening at great scale, and it's hard for the majority of people who are working in their own, uh, you know, who are working busily in their own everyday lives, uh, to keep pace with this. I'm in a position where actually, I'm, you know, I'm paid. It's my job to keep an eye on 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 some of these developments. I mean, one of the things that I've sort of really committed to over the last few years is to try and work in public to a certain degree. Yeah, yeah. So I set up this Code Acts in Education blog, which was really associated with a, a seminar series I ran a couple of years ago. But what I discovered is that as I was slowly beginning to report certain things that I was following and tracing as they, you know, went moved from being a small startup idea into something that has actually, you know, great influence around the world, that more and more people were, were replying to some of these posts saying, you know, it's really useful and interesting and helpful that somebody is actually keeping track of, of some of this stuff yeah, yeah. in a way which uh, we might not be able to. Um, so even, um, you know, a few teachers working in classrooms contacted me saying, you know, can't thank you enough for, you know, uh, detailing what it is that this classroom platform is all about. 
because from the classroom perspective, it just looks like you know quite a neat little platform. Uh, what they haven't really thought about, uh, what might be some of the privacy or ethical implications of this, or indeed what are the longer roots of this organisation, or indeed what's its long-term business plan. Uh, Class Dojo might be a great thing to use in the classroom, but I think we have to acknowledge that its long-term business plan is to make a profit to achieve a return for its investors. Uh, and it's going to accomplish that through the voluntary labour of teachers and children who are inputting uh, into the platform from the classroom. And there's not many people that have the time can slow down in terms of their work to actually say that. So I think we've got to be much, much more proactive as education researchers in our role as a kind of, not a public intellectual, because that sounds quite poncy, but mm -hmm. the public role we have in terms of just slowing debates down pointing to connections and acting as a kind of, as a voice of reason in some ways. Yeah, and I think unless we do that, um, that some of the very powerful organisations or some of the, the new organisations which are gaining power will use um, social media as a way of quickly and easily uh, communicating what is so fantastic about their products and working hard to persuade policymakers that they should also promote their, their products or by bypassing policymakers altogether and convincing head teachers and teachers to, to use these things with, with, within their own schools. I'm not trying to suggest that these organisations don't have a place in education, but I think we, think we do need to work quite hard as academics uh, to give this kind of slower paced account of what is changing and what the consequences of these changes might be in the longer term. Absolutely. Thanks ever so much for your time. Thank you very much, Neil.